Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. I love talking to smart people who are doing amazing work, who've done the research, uh, spending time with Howard French, and now this book, American Founders, How People of African Descent Established Freedom in the New World. Let me welcome the author, Christina Proenza Coles. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. Also, thanks for mentioning me in the same sentence with Howard French. Listen, um, those of you who do this work, uh, the study, you know, you're in libraries, footnotes, traveling, you know, Howard French has been all over the world getting gathering this information. Most people aren't willing to do that. So I'm going to pay homage to the the educators who put the time in the research because we're in a period of age of ignorance that I don't know if we're going to survive. I don't know. How do you how do you feel? Do you feel like we're in the I think they're going to look back 100 years. This was the age of ignorance. I mean, I think it's definitely a really troubling time, no doubt about it. And, you know, I'm 52 years old and, you know, I, I, I'm, and I'm an historian, so I've studied this whole history of violence and cognitive dissonance and all this crazy stuff. But I have to say, I have been sort of surprised and, and disturbed in the last few years about the directions things were going in. And, um, you know, I spent, when I was writing this book that you mentioned, I was teaching at an HBCU and Obama was president for eight years. And I was, you know, that was a different world to me. That was, that was a bubble in which I wrote, originally I wrote the book. And then after the subsequent presidential election, I literally took the manuscript back from the publisher and said, I don't understand American history. I don't, I don't understand American culture. I need to, I need to re- rewrite some things. So I, I've, I've had to make some adjustments, but I will say this, I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher also. And um, I love connecting with the students and I, I mean, I, have, I, I feel good about the young people. The young people are, you know, the kids are all right, as, as they always say. And the other thing I'll say is that when I say about writing the book is I've been able to, I think, you know, we connected on Twitter, I think. And, you know, there's a community of people who are, are interested in this stuff. And I know and social media is so much a cause of all these ills. But on the other hand, I've really enjoyed connecting with this like much larger community. Like, you know, I get to, I get to see Howard French on Twitter. I mean, I'm such a fan of his work. So I keep mentioning him, but I just, I do think there's a network out there. I think that, you know, I I haven't lost all hope yet. Okay. I'm, I'm very close to it, but I I'm going to stay. I'm a fight. I'm not, if I see the iceberg, I'm not waiting until it hits to get off the boat. But we've (laughs) very, I see is it might be on the horizon. Uh, to your point, you know, um, social media, just like anything, is a tool, right? And and so my social media interactions are beautiful because I've blocked all of the trolls, blocked them. Like they don't, I don't interact with trolls. I don't feed them. I'm not interacting. Bye-bye. But because of that, I feel like when I was growing up, there were three channels, two, four, and seven. If you could get 11, if you had a foil for the antenna, I could watch some Dr. J on channel 11 when he was playing for the Nets with my little television, black and white. Radio, you you were forced into different, you know, if you lived regionally, you, you had certain kind of music. And your news was Walter Cronkite or David Brinkley. You didn't have any choices. You, so you knew what you were getting and everyone trusted that, they were telling the truth, both of them, whether you like Brinkley or Cronkite, you didn't think either one of them were gaslighting. Today, Professor Proenza Coles, people, my students, I, I asked them, where do you get their news? They tried to tell me the New York Times, but I knew they were lying. 
because <laughs> they get it for free. They get their news from Twitter. They get their news from, you know, TMZ or TikTok or, you know, they follow different people. New, they say they follow news outlets on Instagram. That's where they get their news. But they're not deep diving into any stories. They're headline reading, skimming, no tertiary knowledge of anything. It's scary, I think. I think we're there. I agree. On the other hand, you know, devil's advocate, I feel like there's there's a night that the upside of this stuff is sort of a democratization of being able to have different voices coming into the picture and people, you know, getting to be part of conversation. Like for me, for example, like COVID obviously was a huge, you know, um, it's, it's, it's devastating, but I'm saying, but an upside to COVID was that the, everything went online. And so I was able to, let's say, attend conferences that I never would have been able to afford or, you know, couldn't have gotten to. And I've, I've met people and had communications with people that I never would have had the opportunity, you know, just in, in my little physical space. So um, there's something nice about that, that kind of virtual community. Okay. I'm going to ask a question. I ask most uh, melanemic people who've made their lives work um, <laughs> this, this kind of unearthing of black power. Uh, who radicalized you? How'd you get <laughs> radicalized? And uh, what was your road to Damascus or your like aha moment to borrow from Oprah? I mean, I'm from Miami in the 1970s and eighties. Um, okay. So, you know, Miami is like a, it's, it's, it's a Latin town. Um, you know, it used to be a, a gym, a serious Jim Crow place. Um, but the neighborhood I lived, I grew up in was built by Bahamians in the 1890s. I mean, literally Miami was founded by Bahamian people. Um, but then also individuals came, African-Americans came from the American South. But for me growing up in the 70s, um, you know, I was watching, I was watching the, cha- the three channels, right? And I was watching like all those TV shows that, you know, and my teachers and TV and everything's telling me like racism is bad and Dr. King has a dream and, um, you know, we're all we're supposed to all be equal but you look around Miami and it was an apartheid city you know it didn't and it didn't take a you know I was a seven-year-old person it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see these kids go to that school these kids live in that neighborhood and to and, and on top of that um you know there was what they called like the marial refugee crisis in 1980 I lived in the neighborhood where um the Arthur McDuffie riots took place um and, you know, what they call like, the, the Haitian refugee crisis happened in the 80s. And I just, you know, so as a kid, I was like, what's going on here? The messages you're telling me about this being an equal opportunity meritocracy place and the, what I'm seeing on the ground, it was completely different. And the other thing I'll say is that, you know, I know you have a Florida connection. Just I had a sense, you know, my, my dad's family was from Cuba. My mom's family was from Georgia. But I was like, man, they, they both eat a lot of like, you know, pork. <laughs> they both eat a lot of rice and beans. I mean, I could feel, I could sort of sense these connections um, in Florida that kind of connect the Caribbean and Latin America and the South. And so I was really curious about how these connections came together. And I was, I mean, I was also under, my big question was, why do we have racism? Why, 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 why? So when I went to school, I studied everything from psychology to sociology to political science and, and it all led me back to history. Because once you ask the question, well, you know, if you keep asking why, you say like, well, what happened before that? So I, I learned about, you know, structural inequality. I learned about how policy shapes, you know, health el- outcomes and how you have, you know, um, real estate, you know, what, what, you know, about redlining. And you can see all those things happening in the 20th century. But if you go back, 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 I found that fascinating. And then I ended up um, 
like luckily, like super lucky, I ended up getting a job at Virginia State University to teach what they called African diaspora history. But what they asked me to teach was world history, US history, Latin American history. And so every semester as I'd, I'd kind of get my lectures going and get the readings going, I kept coming across the stories of um, African descended men and women who had done just extraordinary things. Like thing, they you know, started political movements or fought in independence wars or started businesses or innovated medicine or done all these things. And, um, and, I, tell, and I tell people about it too, like you know, the students and then and, and, you know, friends, whatever, in the weekend, they were like, you should, you should put that down into, in one place. And that's how the book started. So, and I want to be clear too, like I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of the scholars who did this work before me. Yes. Um, because like, for example, I talk a lot about black patriots and the American revolution. Well, there's an African-American historian in Boston in the 1850s who was writing about these African-American patriots who fought in the American revolution. So I'm, I'm, I'm synthesizing that work. I'm putting all that work into one place and also connecting it that thinking about not just the U S but also how the Americas as a whole fit together. But I'll just give you one, one fact example that kind of set the tone for me. The other aha moment was, and this is well-documented that before 1820, Three times, at least three times as many Africans came to the Americas as Europeans before, you know, the, the first quarter of the 19th century, which for a historian is like yesterday. Um, wait, wait, ex- explain that. Christina Provenza uh, Coles is here. Her book is American Founders. Three times before the 1820s. Three times as many Africans. Came three times to as the- many. Three times as many. Three times as many. Um, so, because, you know, and Howard French does a great job actually with all these numbers are changing, but, you know, so let's, let's say, you know, roughly 12 million, you know, men, women, and children are forced from West and West Central Africa to, to uh, the American colonies. Well, that's, that's proportionally, that was three to four, depending on the numbers, four times as many Europeans who are coming to the Americas at that time. So this, in other words, this is because of the Atlantic slave trade. So this is involuntary travel. This is the biggest demographic shift in world history. This is part of a huge violence. But on the other hand, to think about it another way, you know, I feel like you could also argue that, that means that the majority of Americans coming to the new world were Africans, is, is to put it that way. And ah. that the majority of Americans it, before 1820 were enslaved. That, so to try to make this sort of like, this is, the, this is the demographic reality of our founding. It's the political, economic, cultural reality. And on top of that, any place you have enslaved communities, you always have free people of color. And particularly when you have, you know, large enslaved communities, you get even bigger, bigger, bigger free people of color um, communities. And so always these communities and individuals are pushing against um, slavery, pushing against discrimination. And it really, all these stories, I guess, that I kept coming across, it just fundamentally changed how I understand the history of freedom, the history of democracy, what it means to be American, and to sort of recognize, I mean, you could say, let's say, so after the American Revolution, and this isn't my stat, someone else's statistic, you know, one fifth of the American population remained, of the United States, I should say, remained enslaved. So one out of five people after the American Revolution were enslaved. So, you know, that's, that's not a democracy. I feel like the, the second shot comes at the, during the Civil War, which I would argue men and women of African descent pushed that, pushed that conflict into happening, whether it was through running, you know, the fugitive slave laws, South Carolina says, I can't stand how no one's returning, you know, these, these fugitive individuals. Well, they are pushing, you know, there's thousands of individuals who are, poor. and by the way, there are black and white people who are assisting them to get to the North and also people who are fleeing to Mexico, people who are fleeing through Florida to the Caribbean. So people are pushing this conflict onto the, onto the political horizon. And then when the civil war arrives, some half a million people liberate themselves from plantations, many of whom 
go and fight the union forces for the freedom of somebody else. So, and, and then on top of that, you can see this pattern kind of again in the independence wars in Latin America. You can see this in different ways in the Caribbean. And I started to see that if you just switch your thinking a little bit and recognize that these men and women were on the forefront of these projects for freedom and democracy, that the stories, I mean, they're just endless. I mean, it's, it's the, the book could have been twice as long, three times as long. Maybe they should be volumes. Uh, we are here. We're talking with Professor uh, Christina Proenza Coles. The book is American Founders, How People of African Descent Established Freedom in the New World. In the first couple of minutes, you talked about Miami and you talked about the Bahamian connection. And in that moment, I'm Google searching. You sent me down a rabbit hole in real time. And I ran into somebody named Mariah Brown, originally from the Bahamas, uh, who became the village's first black Bahamian resident in 1889. A hotel was there. It was black. It was I didn't know that I was today years old when I learned the Bahamian connection to Miami, Florida, in just one minute of you dropping that in conversation. But, this- but get this, but then, but then these crazy things start to happen if you start to follow the thread. So, um, like I said, there are also people coming um, from the South, African-Americans coming from the South, coming to South Florida. And there's a man, I'm going to forget his name right now. I'm going to forget his name. I can't remember his name. Anyway, he came from, I think, Georgia. He comes to Miami. He marries a Bahamian woman in, in Coconut Grove. And um, they end up settling further south in the Keys. And they have like a, a pineapple farm. And um, they have two sons. And their sons are Lancelot and, and um, God, what's the other medieval name? I can't think of his name. Um, they're wonderful names. Anyway, so one one son fights in World War II, but he, he dies early-ish. The second son, Lancelot, ends up, he gets a choice. He could sell out this land in the Keys to developers. And this is, this is like in the 60s or 70s, I think. Or he can give it to the National Park Service to create a national park. Well, Lancelot's sort of gift, if you will, I mean, he gets paid, but I mean, he would have got a lot more from the developers so his arrangement with the National Park Service is why we have the Everglades National Park. It's why we have the Florida Keys National Park. I mean, it ends up preserving all of this environment. I mean, this is before we realized all its environmental stuff. So it preserves all of the South Florida environment. It creates a lot of jobs for tourism, um, the way that we protected the Keys, that the, that the Keys didn't become like another, you know, whatever, like not to denigrate another part of Florida, but it doesn't become this super high density area. It's all thanks to this family as i said she was from the bahamas and he was from he was from the south the the, the matriarch and patriarch uh as you were putting this book together the first person that you ran into just how you just gave me the bahamas and the connection and that led me to this woman uh <laughs> and then now, now i'm like i can't wait to get off the the you know this call so i can read more about south florida's first black millionaire uh, I want to learn about Ebenezer Woodbury Franklin Stirrup Sr. Oh, my goodness. Like, I'm looking forward to this, Coconut Grove. Uh, what was the first person that you ran into? And tell us their story. Oh, in the book? Yes. Golly. That you were like, oh, my goodness. Why don't we know oh, this? Golly. I mean, this project has been like a labor of love. For okay, us for, so just pull like, one. So pull one. Decades. Pull one off the top of your head that you're like, I can't believe this is not a national story that everyone in the world doesn't know about this person. Oh my God, there's so many. I always get panicked. I mean, there's, it's, I mean, first of all, I want to like not to be like promotional, but like the reason why I do the Twitter and the Instagram is because I get to focus on somebody every day. And I get, so usually what happens is whoever I'm focusing on and we try to talk about how they affected, you know, American history or how they shaped freedom or how they shaped, you know, medicine or how... 
Um, so I usually end up like being related to that, that person who I've been focusing on. Um, so there's so, there's so many individuals that, and like the okay. Instagram is just a map of the, of the, right. let's do today's know. let's okay. do Henrietta Bowers Duterte. Oh my gosh. I mean, so she was born in Philadelphia and Philadelphia itself. I mean, the Philadelphia, the people, the, all the Philadelphia network is just so incredible. Cause again, it was in this early place that had slavery, but it also had this very strong free black, free black community. So it had very early like schools and mutual aid societies. So it had a very advanced, um, just uh, African-American um, like kind of political environment that was very, very active. And she was married, actually, her, she ended up, she's, she's the first female mortician um, who owns a mortuary in the United States. And to be honest, I didn't put it in the tweet today, she, it's because she inherits it from her husband, who is from Saint-Domingue, who's from Haiti. That's the Duterte at the end of her name. And when he passed, they run it together, but when he passes away, she's the sole proprietor. Um, and she would use the caskets as a way to transport people, um, help, you know, pr- provide safety for people traveling along the Underground Railroad. And she's not the only person who did this. There's another, there's another guy, I can't think of his name. Oh my gosh. It's, his initials are WW. So you can see it in his lapel. And he's also from Philadelphia. And he would, um, he had uh, train cars to help. He was, like, he, was, he was a lumber entrepreneur magnate. And so he'd, ha- he'd have train cars to move the lumber. He would also hide individuals for the Underground Railroad. So these individuals, I mean, they gave their communities, they gave back, they were philanthropic, they did funding and stuff. Um, but they also like literally helped the Underground Railroad in terms of using their businesses to support this, this movement to freedom. And like I said, I, I feel like you can kind of tell the story over and over in many, many ways that this, that this um, you know, this isn't just sort of like the traditional, like, another thing wrong with the traditional underground railroad story but to recognize that like as i said the underground railroad was running all different directions it wasn't just running to canada um it, that it was running um very much to the bahamas and to the into mexico i think that's super fascinating that you know the, the all these connections connecting us like to latin america and to the caribbean and to canada that these, these roots are really are really deep mm. dr sophia jones Oh my gosh. So is she the one whose dad, so her father was um, a free person who uh, went to Oberlin and that's what no, he go was, to, you say he was enslaved in North Carolina and graduated from Oberlin. Yes. And, and so and he, they managed to become free. And if I remember this one correctly, they built a few schools that are burned down um, in the South. I mean, there's a lot of obviously um, pushback to, to free people of color. Um, but he manages to um, go to Oberlin, which I mean, Oberlin has a, the who's who of Oberlin of the black graduates of Oberlin is just phenomenal throughout the 19th century. Um, but he settles in, the dad settles in Canada and he has two really accomplished daughters. I mean, one daughter, so Dr. Sophia Jones becomes a physician um, and also a dean of a school and is very involved in, in, in um, healthcare and education um, as a private practice. But her sister, I'm trying to remember as well, um, also gets an advanced degree. Um, and is a, is a, if I'm not mistaken, it's like one of the first like female head, headmistresses or like deans of, of a, of a school, um, in the United States. So they're a very, very accomplished family. I'm gone. I'm just going through your, your Twitter timeline, <laughs> Dr. Marcus Wheatland, uh, born in Barbados, Howard university, uh, graduate in 1895 established the x-ray. He introduced the first x-ray machine. These are things that will not be taught in Florida. These are things that will not be taught in Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. These are things that may not be taught in Georgia outside of Atlanta. But these are these are stories and people and human beings that everybody should know. How do we 
How do we navigate this current crisis that I believe our education system is under? So here's the thing. So this is why I was saying that when I was uh, upset about the presidential election that occurred after uh, Obama left office, that I, that I took the manuscript back and I re- literally rewrote the manuscript. Um, I took out anything that seemed, this is way before CRT, I took out anything that seemed divisive or made people uncomfortable. Like the, the one thing I will say about my book, there's no book, is that um, it's a very <laughs> rosy hold, picture. Hold, hold it up again. Hold meeting. it up. Hold it up again. <laughs> hold them up again. Yes. You got a paperback okay. and I got a. Um, you got the hardcover. Hard yes. Back. So I say in the beginning, I say in the introduction, I'm assuming that you, the reader, already understand and know about the brutal history of slavery on which this country is founded, on which all the Americas are founded. I'm assuming that you are aware of this, the violence and exploitation on which all of this rests. So this is not a book about that violence and exploitation, although it's, you know, you can't avoid it. So I'm circling around it, but this is a celebration, this book. This is a book that is celebrating the best and the brightest of our American history. And I did that very deliberately. No one gets their feelings hurt reading this book. No one, you know, <laughs> I'm just, and I, didn't, and I didn't mean to do that as like a CRT thing. I just wanted to open the discussion. I wanted to make this, you know, this, I, you know, this is always go, ends up in African-American history, um, you know, sections of bookstores, but I think of it as American history, full stop. It is American history. It's history that is meant for everyone. Anyone who is interested in America or who lives in America or is from America is this book is about them and this history. We're all connected to this history. But, um, but you do, you do, you do understand though, professor, that just writing this book, even though you try to make it something that wasn't making anyone feel bad, just saying black people did things. <laughs> black people were Americans. Just saying that, that these people like three times more, in, you know, Africans came, you know, they, they were Americans, more people were enslaved, more Americans. Just saying that is offensive. You know, that that's the problem. Well, I mean, I do realize that like, and one thing I've been asking myself a lot is as I study is, you know, why do you have this lynching spectacle culture that's like really intense violence after reconstruction? I mean, slavery is violent everywhere, but this, that, that reconstruction, post-reconstruction lynching Jim Crow segregation stuff, that's really, that's really unique to the United States, which is not to say that it wasn't racial violence in other parts of the Americas, because there was, there's white supremacy, there's like different, you know, life expect, you know, life outcomes and stuff because of racism, but just that, that, you know, bring your kid to a picnic, take a picture, send a postcard culture, that contagion, if you will, that ritual, that religion, if you will, of lynching. I've always asked myself, why, why? And I think, you know, it's because this man was a postmaster, this man who was like, forget his name now, I'm sorry, in South Carolina, he was a postmaster in 1898. And he and his two-year-old daughter, Julia, I remember her name, were murdered because he was a postmaster, because that was seen as threatening the social order. So I, I, I see your point, which is that just, if this is a culture where being, a postmaster can unsettle someone's entire identity and cause them to commit murderous violence. I see your point. We're going to say his name. We're going to say his name, Frazier Baker, 40 year old, 40 year old from Lake city, South Carolina. He and his infant daughter were murdered. His infant daughter, they were murdered by a mob, which included men and women. A mob of people killed a man with his infant daughter. Continue. For the transgression of, 
serving as a postmaster for helping. I mean, for, I mean I'm saying it's, it's not a trial, or, or the idea of the, the, the way that, you know, returning soldiers were maimed after, you know, serving in World War One, World War II. Serving this country, War. serving America. Serving so I do see that that is, that is um, a dangerous concept. On the other hand, I will say this, that in, in, you know, in my working on this book and sharing this book and promoting this book, I mean, people from every single possible background have come up to me and said, I love this book. I, I, I learned so much from this book. Um, in other words, there are people, I mean, my last, my last in-person book event before COVID um, when everything went virtual was um, the Society of Colonial Dames at the Chapel Hill Country Club in North Carolina. And those ladies were wonderful and they got out their checkbook. They sat there and listened. And I told my story about growing up in Miami and why I did this. And they got their checks, their paper checks out and they bought the book. I mean, these, you know, people want to know that. I mean, my point is, I mean, everybody's complicated. There's lots. I mean, we're in, I can't believe the extremes that we've kind of gone to these days, but there's lots of people who want to know the truth, who can feel proud of this connected history and also who are, you know, smart enough to recognize, of course, we're all connected. I mean, multi, as I say in the book, like multiculturalism, you know, isn't some newfangled political correct thing. It's the demographic reality of how the Americas were founded. I mean, as we just said, the majority of people coming to the Americas were from Africa before 1820. The majority of people in the Americas were, in, you know, native ancestry, obviously before, you know, as well. People, you know, there's, we're just talking to any class. There are people from China and in, in Mexico in the 1700s. Um, so we really are, this isn't like a new talking point of the left. I mean, this is literally how the nation, how the hemisphere was built. Um, and if you look at the history, it's mm. irrefutable. And if we're, if we're reading Howard French, we'll know that Africans sailed the ocean blue to the new world, uh, possibly uh, Mansa Musa's predecessor, uh, left. Abu Bakari the second. Yes, left. Uh, left him in charge because he was going out sailing. Let me ask you: American Founders is the book. Uh, the author is Christina Proenza Coles. Uh, the book's subtitle: How People of African Descent Established Freedom in the New World. That subtitle could be problematic in Florida. Could get you arrested, probably. Um, I, I find that whiteness is the problem. I think. Oh whiteness, yeah. The contrast of white. Okay. So uh, when I say that, some people get super offended, but I'm like, it's a made up construct. So you're mad about something that doesn't exist, except in your mind, except in, and why are you wedded to this thing called whiteness? Why is it something that by me saying that is so offensive that you're ready to fight? Come on, come on, professor. So this is my original thing. My dissertation was about how whiteness was constructed legally in colonial Virginia versus colonial Cuba. And it's specifically how mixed race kids were legally, um, defined and those and those and how do we how do we define these legal characteristics categories of who's white who's black and the reason why i did it is because like i said my dad was from cuba he came to miami in the 1940s and um he lived you know there weren't any cubans in miami no there weren't many cubans there weren't cuban neighborhoods in miami in the 1940s he always would tell the story that he moved into a jewish neighborhood and he slept on the porch and he took the bus and he went to first grade and they changed his name and he learned english and um and it was hard. And my great, my grandfather was a, um, was a bus boy. He worked double shifts, never spoke English. My grandmother was a seamstress. It was not easy. Um, on the other hand, then I read the autobiography of Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier immigrated pretty much at the same time from the Caribbean, from the Bahamas. And he is forced to stay in an all black ethnic, you know, enclave, a, a, a ghetto, is what they, you know, neighborhood that if you, if you read, um, 
in, um, what's his, and, and, and D.B. Connolly, who was just in the New York Times about his own home being assessed, racially profiled, if you will. He wrote a brilliant book about Miami real estate and why you end up with these, these deliberate steps to create these, you know, black ghettos that were underserved, you know, didn't have running water. So anyway, so Sidney Poitier, who's coming from an all black community in the Bahamas, doesn't understand the Jim Crow mentality. And so he's a teenager like my dad. He gets a job at the at the drugstore, I think. And so he's delivering stuff for the drugstore on his bike. And he gets to this white lady's house in Miami Beach and he goes up and he rings her doorbell and deliver her package. And she says, no, 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 no. You don't come to the front door of my house. You go to the back door. And he's thinking, I mean, I don't know what he's thinking, but I'm sure he's thinking, you know, what? But oh, okay, here's your thing. So he goes back to his, it's his uncle's house he's staying at. The clan show up to his uncle's house to like enforce this idea that he needs to learn his place, you know, this teenager. So Sidney Poitier is like, I'm leaving. That's, <laughs> I'm getting out of here. So he wants to leave. And so, but his suit is in the dry cleaner and the dry cleaner is closed in his neighborhood. And they're like, you've got to go to the plant that's like not in the black neighborhood. And um, so he does, cause he wants to get out of town. So he goes to get his suit and he's, he's out, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not quite, it's not like a sundown town, but there's like an informal curfew that the clan, the police, you know, impose on black people. And so he's outside of, you know, outside of the black neighborhood. And so the Miami police come up to him. If I'm not I'm getting the ages wrong today, but I think he's 14. He's a 14 year old kid. The cops train a gun at his head and have him walk home to his uncle's house while they like roll behind him. You know, I'm thinking, okay, A, that didn't happen to my dad. B, like, I mean, what in the world? But so my point is, you know, my dad was able to sort of capitalize on whiteness. My dad, my dad, my dad in having a southern accent. You know, I got white privilege. And I, you, but you can say I could watch my dad like switch in and out of like, you know, Cubanness and whiteness. Um, and obviously, Sydney Poitier goes on to become very successful and like a, you know, a knighted, you know, Academy Award winning, you know, brilliant diplomat. But my point is, it occurred to me. I was like, oh my gosh, we have this, we, this, these invented color lines, and then we sift and sort people that they have to go on either on one or the other side of it. And it really dawned on me, that was an aha moment where I was like, this whiteness stuff is like, it's just a cultural construct. It's like how you walk the walk and talk the talk, who you know and what you do. And also there's a lot of appearance to it as well, but not as much in Latin America, you know, it's all super interesting. And so that's my rabbit hole. And that's what I've been interested in. And frankly, I'm trying to turn my dissertation on this stuff into a book about the history of whiteness in the Americas to talk about all the different ways it's, it changes. I mean, what's uniform is that it's, you know, it's violence is used to, uh, to, to solidify, that it's a political tool, that it's used to, you know, retain power. But on the other hand, it's really interesting to watch that the, it expand and contract. I mean, there were these um, Irish orphans, and this is a book that was written by, I'm gonna forget her name, she's so smart, this was years ago. These Irish orphans in the foundling home in New York, and they're Catholic. And in New York, they're like, ah, these Irish kids, like they're not like, they're not, well, they're Catholic. And so they're trying, the nuns are trying to place these Catholic orphans that nobody wants with other Catholic families. And so these families in Arizona territory, it's like 1890, I think, around there. Um, these families in Arizona are like, yes, through their church, they're like, we would love to adopt, you know, these children. So they take the orphans down there. And um, the families are Mexican people. By the way, Arizona was Mexico, you know, until like 10 minutes ago. But anyway, so there's people of, of um, I mean, until, sorry, until 1848, but um, or 1852, I get the dates, but you know, that Mexican-American war that we started to take those territories. Um, so anyhow, the, the Anglo settlers in the territory are like, wait, what? You can't give these white orphans to these, you know, 
Mexicans. And so all of a sudden the orphans went from being like not quite white in New York City to being like super white in the Arizona territory. And by the way, the so the, <laughs> the Anglo people, they go in as vigilantes and just take the, the babies. And then they go to this, you know, tribunal, whatever, territory court or whatever. And the court's like, yep, that's that's the correct course of action. <laughs> like, yes. Wow. Wow. But this idea that just that like that it's just who who's considered white depends on like where you are, you know, there's it's very contextual, you know. And so I think that once we realize that it's a political construct, we can kind of maybe be free of it, you know. And as James Baldwin said, you know, white people are trapped in history, they don't understand. And until they understand it, they can't be released from it. And well, so that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Is less, ways we have less than a minute. I want you to come back and let's Thank let's you. work on this. No, for real. I think this has to be a constant drumbeat, you know, uh, to make people think more deeply about themselves and in, in, in their place in this world. And you've started it with American Founders. And I love I love what you're doing on your Twitter space. And I thank you for being here today. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. You are awesome. Christina Proenza Coles. The book is American Founders. How people of African descent establish freedom in the new world. Get the book. Get the book. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.